morning and welcome to this time of worship. Before we begin, let me just remind you that we are having another coffee time after the service this morning. This will be the last one. Obviously, it's not so easy to do when we're all meeting here and then uh, traveling home different distances. So this will be the last time at the moment that we'll be having the coffee time at 12 after the service, and I hope that you can join that. And then uh, this evening, we're meeting again online at 6 p.m. to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel into chapter 22 of Matthew. So I hope that you can um, read ahead this afternoon, maybe, and then join us for that. Then this Thursday, uh, we're doing something we haven't uh, tried before, at least not in exactly this way. At 7.45, we're going to have a prayer meeting online. And we're going to begin doing this on the first and third Thursdays of each month. Steve will send out details of how to join in, but it's for the whole church. And it will be set up similar to the morning coffee times if you've joined in with any of those. And then next Sunday, we are back to in-person services here in the building. So there will be two morning services again, 9.30 and 11.15, and then 6 p.m. in the evening. All those will be here in the building. The 11.15 and the 6 o'clock services will be streamed online. And you're welcome to come to either of the morning services, but we are anticipating that most of you will come at the same time slot you did before the lockdown. So there is flexibility because we have space but we're assuming you'll stick largely with uh, the time slots that you were using before. But we hope to see you next Sunday. And just as we finish these streaming-only weeks, I just want to say thanks on your behalf to Alan, Nathan, Jake, and Kevin, and particularly to Tom McGough. Tom has been here every week to stream both services during the lockdown, so thank you to all of you, and particularly to Tom for the service that you've done. And I know that it will be continuing next week, but I just wanted to mention that uh, that has enabled us to meet online during these four weeks. Then a reminder also that shoeboxes, we had to delay the collection of those, but they're due next Sunday. So hopefully you can uh, bring those to the service when you come next week. And then looking just a few weeks ahead, but not too many weeks ahead, we're having a carol service, which we're going to repeat. So it will be at 6 p.m. on December the 13th, and then that service will be repeated exactly on the 20th. That's to enable us to hopefully fit all of ourselves in, plus some visitors over those two nights. You will, in due course, hopefully sometime this week, be able to book for that on the website. Or you could just contact Steve or myself and we'll make sure you get signed up for one of those. Once one of those slots is full, then we'll have to begin directing you to the other slot. So whichever one fills up first, we'll ask you to come to the alternative date. I think that's all I need to tell you, but do just think of the carol services and who you might invite and please be praying for those well in advance. One of the beautiful things about the Christian life 
is that Christianity is not only about what God has done for us, it's also about what he will do. It's not only about forgiveness from sin, it's also about a present and a future where God walks with us, where he leads us. And even in great difficulties, we know as God's people that the best is still ahead of us. It's never behind us. As Christians, we can all grow weary. We know that. But we have no cause to be dejected in our weariness. The best is always still ahead of us. And our first song reminds us God is at work today. He's at work in us and for us. That is a treasure worth singing about. So join with me as we sing, we have this treasure from the Lord our God.
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that not only have you begun a good work in us, you have promised you will also carry it on to completion. And we might not always feel like we're works in progress. Sometimes we might feel the work has stalled. We might even feel the workman has packed up and left. But we thank you that is not true. We thank you that even if our life seems to have taken us to a dead end, we know you are committed to us. We know you do not give up on us and move on. And this morning we ask you to remind us and reassure us of that. We ask you to give us new hope. Give us a new faith to look for your work in our lives. To see And to know your goodness to us. And if we feel today that you have bypassed us, will you show us how wrong we are? Show us that you are far from finished with us. And as we see that, we will praise you for your amazing grace. Amen. This is the first Sunday in Advent. Advent means arrival. And at this time of year, we celebrate the arrival of God's Son in human flesh. We light an Advent wreath every year to remind us Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And before we light our first candle today, we have a short reading from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament showing us that Christ's advent was long expected and long foretold. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of that Old Testament expectation, expressing that longing for Emmanuel to come, for the light of the world to arrive. But before we sing that, we're going to join together in a congregational prayer, a short prayer, which will appear on the screen. And if you'll join me in praying that together, and then we'll go straight into singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Lord God, as we light this candle, we thank you for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. We who have lived in darkness have seen a great light, the light of Jesus Christ, our salvation. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Last week, we finished looking at the book of Judges, and I realized there were some difficulties with the streaming of that service, but if you missed it, here's what you need to know about the end of Judges. The final chapters of that book gave us a picture of ordinary life in Israel, and it was not a pretty picture. It was an ugly mess, a mess where everyone did as they saw fit. A mess that came because everyone did as they saw fit, rather than seeking to obey the Lord. The book of Judges ended with evil deeds and messed up attempts to punish those evil deeds and put things right. And it's worth remembering those final chapters began and ended with the abuse of women. First, the abuse of the concubine in chapter 19, and then the 600 stolen wives in chapter 21. That's significant because this morning we come to a book dealing with events in the same time period. We'll learn that in the first verse of the book. And this book centers on two women and one man. But where the end of Judges showed us dishonor, abuse, and abandonment, this book shows us honor, respect, and faithful love. For the next four weeks, we will be looking together at the book of Ruth, and we'll see that as bad as the period of the Judges was, Amid the chaos and the faithlessness of that time, there were still faithful people. And there was still a faithful God working to fulfill his promises. And as we look at this book in the run-up to Christmas, I hope we'll see Christmas didn't start with Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. In his faithful love, God had been preparing for Christmas long, long before that. So let's turn to the book of Ruth. You'll find it right after Judges in the Old Testament. And we'll read chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, 
Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. And it takes us back to Bethlehem. But first, in the opening verses, we find a family moving away from Bethlehem. We see them leaving and losing. Verse 1 tells us these events happened in the days when the judges ruled. So this is during the time we've been hearing about in recent weeks. A dark time. A time when everyone did as they saw fit, or what was right in their own eyes. And mostly what was right in their own eyes was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the result was a whole lot of pain in Israel. The Lord let the people experience the bitter fruit of their evil choices. Now, verse 1 mentions a specific bitter situation. 
there was a famine in the land. Now, having just read the book of Judges, I think we have to see this not just as an unfortunate glitch in things. I think we have to see it as part of the pain and suffering that came on Israel because they turned away from the Lord. Now, we know sometimes a famine is just a famine. But I think we have to see this famine as part of the bitter fruit of Israel's sin. Whether it was due to a failure of the rain or whether it was due to Israel's enemies stealing or ruining the crops, whatever the reason was on the ground, the ultimate reason for this famine is Israel's sin and their unfaithfulness to God. This promised land that was supposed to be Israel's place of rest and prosperity has become a dead barren land because of Israel's sin. And that's highlighted by the first place that's named in this book, Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it earned that name because it was normally a very fruitful place. It was known for producing not only bread, but also olives, almonds, and grapes. But now, Bethlehem has none of those things. There is no bread in the house of bread. So one man from Bethlehem takes his wife and his two sons and he leaves. And before we notice where they go to, it's worth just making a mental note here. Having just said that Bethlehem was normally a fruitful place, it's also true that at this time it was a fairly insignificant place just a small farming town. But having just read the final chapters of Judges, we might be beginning to think there's something about Bethlehem. Judges chapter 17 to 21 told us four times that Israel was lacking a king. The implication was Israel needed a king. Then in among those four statements about a king... In Judges chapter 17, we met a Levite from Bethlehem. In Judges 19, we met a concubine from Bethlehem. And now, here's a whole book centered on Bethlehem. What is it about this place? Does God have a particular eye on this town? Could this town have some connection with the king Israel needs? Certainly the Bible seems to want us to stick a pin in Bethlehem and keep our eye on it. But here as the book of Ruth opens, we find a man taking his family away from Bethlehem. And look where they go. From Bethlehem in Israel to Moab outside of Israel. And it's important for us to realize the Moabites were long-standing enemies of Israel. Generations before this, they hired a prophet named Balaam specifically to try and curse the Israelites. And when that plan failed, they tried another tactic that worked. Moabite women were involved in seducing Israelite men into idol worship. 
You can read about that in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 22 to 25. And then much closer in time to this point, Eglon, Moab's very fat king, was one of Israel's oppressors during the time of the judges. So the Moabites are not friends of Israel. But in desperation, this man takes his family to Moab looking for food. And look at the man's name in verse 2, Elimelech, which means God is king, or my God is king. Now, the writer of this book makes no direct comment as to whether Elimelech was right or wrong to leave Israel and go to Moab. He doesn't make a direct comment, but by giving us the man's name, right after telling us he left the promised land to live among Israel's enemies, I think we are to see this move as a problem. On one hand, we might think, well, who can blame a husband and father for taking the initiative to provide for his family? Isn't that what all husbands and fathers should do? Yes, it is. But when a husband and father whose name means my God is king, when he takes his family out of God's promised land into the land of God's enemies, we might begin to wonder if that man has lost faith that God really is king anymore. And when we read in verse 4 that Elimelech's sons then married Moabite women, then our suspicions about this are confirmed. Because God's law was very clear about that point. Israelites were not to intermarry with idol worshippers. Because that always turned them into idol worshippers too. So this family leaves Israel and it seems we are to understand Elimelech is not just giving up on Israel. He may well be giving up on the God of Israel too. But the result of this is not the fullness Elimelech hoped for. The result is emptiness. He dies. Then about 10 years later, his two sons die as well. And although they were both married, they have no children. Elimelech's wife, Naomi, is left without her two sons and without her husband. And without any grandchildren either. This family left and they lost. They gave up on the promised land and maybe they gave up on the God of the promised land too. But instead of finding fullness, they find emptiness. And trying to escape famine, they walked right into the clutches of death. And according to the Bible as a whole, that is always the result when we turn away from God. Whatever it is we turn to instead of God, the outcome is never what we hoped for. We go looking for fullness and we find only emptiness. We find ourselves in a painful situation. We decide to try and solve it without God but that path only leads us to loss. 
In this case, it's Naomi who feels the brunt of the loss. Now, we don't know what say she had or didn't have in the move from Bethlehem to Moab, but now she finds herself alone. Well, not actually alone, as we'll see, but she feels alone in a foreign country without her husband and without her sons. Then verse 6 says, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And when Naomi hears that good news, she decides to return to Bethlehem. That word return is significant. It occurs 12 times in this passage, although it's not always translated the same way in the NIV. The word is significant because the Old Testament prophets use the word a lot. And when the prophets use it, it's translated repent. In other words, this is a word not just about coming home, but about coming back to God. And I think it has both meanings here. Yes, Naomi sets out to come home, but as she does, she is also returning to the Lord. She is turning her back on Moab to return to God's promised land and God's people and God himself. We might even think of Naomi like the prodigal son in Jesus' story, coming back to the father's house after the disappointment and the emptiness he found in the distant country. But unlike that prodigal son in Jesus' story, Naomi doesn't come home alone. We find her returning with a faithful friend. When Orpah and Ruth married Naomi's sons, they had become part of her household. And now, even though they're widows, they are still with her. And when she heads for Bethlehem, they set out with her. That's to be expected. They do have an obligation to Naomi. And Naomi understands that, and she takes care to release them from their obligation. In verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi says, I know you're coming because you're loyal to me. You're good girls. But I release you, and I pray the Lord will show kindness to you. In Hebrew, the Hebrew word translated kindness is another key word in this whole book. And it deserves to be translated a little more strongly. Because today, kindness might mean nothing more than being nice. So if you let somebody in front of you in a queue, they might say, you're so kind. But here, Naomi is talking about more than just a little gesture like that. Older English Bibles went for loving kindness, which is an improvement. Maybe faithful love is an even better translation of the word. Whatever translation is used, though, the original word refers to exceptional acts of love. Love that goes above and beyond what could reasonably be expected. 
And here, Naomi wishes for the Lord to show that kind of love to her daughters-in-law. But significantly, she does not think that kind of love is waiting for her back in Bethlehem. She hopes to survive there, but apparently she doesn't hope to thrive. That will become clear in the next verses. But we already see it here. She says to Orpah and Ruth, your best hope is to go back home. Don't come with me. But these ladies are good. Naomi has released them from their duty, but they aren't put off so easily. In verse 10, they say, we will go back to, with you to your people. So Naomi hammers her point more strongly a second time in verse 11. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then give birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi is quite sure all she has left is to live out her days. She hopes to find bread in Bethlehem, but nothing beyond that. Certainly no great blessing from the Lord. He is against her as far as she can see. That's how she interprets the events of her life. And so she thinks God might let her share some of the food he's providing for his people, but nothing more. Naomi is returning, but not in any great hope. And at this point, Orpah bows out. She has gone as far as can reasonably be expected. No one can accuse her of being uncaring or being heartless. It took a second firm speech from Naomi before Orpah turns and walks home. And surely Naomi is right. Surely Orpah's best hope is back in Moab. What can she hope for if she stays with Naomi? And the fact that Orpah does the reasonable thing, that only highlights the extraordinary commitment that is shown by Ruth. Verse 14 says, While Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, Ruth clings to her. She abandons her home and her people to stay with this hopeless lady, who at this point is not very pleasant company either. And Ruth must know that she might well suffer prejudice in Bethlehem. She's a Moabite, remember. And we all know what they have done to Israel in the past. And she knows Naomi's right. What hope will Ruth have of finding a husband in Bethlehem? And without a husband, how will she make ends meet? Because having a husband at this time was not all about romance. At this point in time, a husband was the main way a woman could find security. Naomi tries one more time to get this girl to see sense. 
And Naomi also gets zero points here as an evangelist in verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This is hardcore commitment from Ruth to an old lady who has nothing to offer her. Ruth is showing us what faithful love looks like. It's love that goes well beyond duty. It is extraordinary, lifelong commitment. Faithful love loves with no guarantees of payback or reward. It's love that knows the cost, but loves anyway and never gives up. So Naomi returns to Bethlehem with very little hope beyond just surviving, but she returns with a faithful friend at her side. And yet she doesn't seem to grasp what a blessing that is. Because at the end of our passage, we find Naomi home, but bitter. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Verse 19 says the whole town was stirred because of Naomi. She's been gone for about 10 years. We might wonder, are they full of joy to see her back? Are they shocked to see her so bereft without her husband and her sons? And we're not told. But if they are joyful, Naomi soon dampens that. Don't call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. And Naomi thinks that suits her much better. She certainly is bitter, and she blames that on the Lord. There's no doubt here she believes in the Lord. She's come back to Bethlehem because of the Lord. Back in verse 6, we were told she returns because she hears the Lord is providing food in Bethlehem. So Naomi believes in the Lord. She believes he will help his people survive. Her husband's name meant my God is king and Naomi believes that too. She knows the Lord rules. But Naomi is bitter because she does not expect faithful love from the Lord. 
She expects to survive under his care, but that's all. She doesn't expect a love that goes beyond mere duty and the bare minimum. And Naomi thinks she's justified in her low expectations. She says, the Lord has afflicted me. Wasn't it his hand that took away my husband and my two sons? Hasn't he shown me sovereignty without grace? Hasn't he shown me power without compassion? Naomi has returned to Bethlehem and to the Lord. But she's so wrapped up in her own sadness, she isn't ready to see the Lord's faithful love. She has suffered great loss. But who is walking beside her as she comes home? Ruth. Naomi almost seems to be ignoring her. But in Ruth, Naomi has a faithful friend. A friend who has given up everything for her. If only Naomi could look up for a moment from her bitterness, she might realize the Lord is showing faithful love to her through Ruth. And how can Naomi be so certain her future is bleak? How can she be so sure there's nothing for her but mere survival? If she'd look up, she'd notice not only Ruth, she'd notice the fields all around her, ripe, full of barley. Verse 22 reminds us, the two women arrive back in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is happening, just as it's beginning. Can Naomi really be so sure the Lord's hand is against her? Can she be so sure her future is going to be bleak and joyless? Can the Lord who gave her this faithful friend not show her more of his great love? Can the God who brought this wonderful harvest not bring joy and fullness into her life again? He can and he will. The story of this book is a journey from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to sweetness. Naomi was right to return to God. She was badly wrong in her expectations of God. She thought she'd just survive under his care and no more. And what about us? Do we have something of that bitter edge to our own faith? We know God is real. We know that he rules. But we think he kind of has it in for us. He'll get us through, we think, but a bit reluctantly. He'll do it because he has to. We've turned to him, and yes, he'll honor his promise to save us, but that's about it. Is that what we think of God? 
If we're honest, have the setbacks and the losses we faced left us with a faith that's a bit bleak, a bit restricted, a bit bitter? If that's the case, then we need to go back to Bethlehem. I don't mean that we need to take a flight over to Israel. I mean we need to come back to what the Bible tells us about Bethlehem. Because this town is where God has revealed his faithful love. Love that goes beyond all reasonable lengths. Love that breaks the boundaries of expected commitment. God revealed that kind of love here through Ruth. He did it supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. A baby born in Bethlehem. A thousand years after Ruth. Ruth had given up her home and her people. Jesus, the Son of God, gave up his throne in heaven. To be born in humility and then to die in humiliation. Why? Because God's commitment to his people goes immeasurably beyond what we can imagine. His love is not just duty. It's not reluctant. When you and I get bleak and bitter because of losses in our lives, we are forgetting Bethlehem. Look at Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Look even more at Jesus' commitment. That is how committed Almighty God is to his people. That's how committed he is to you if you've turned to him. And turning to him means trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Choosing him instead of any other Savior. Choosing him above anything else we might trust in or hope in. When we turn to God through Jesus, our future is not just a future of surviving. It's a future filled with God's faithful love. A preacher called Mark Dever challenges us like this. Amid the trials you presently face, do you really think God has no plans or purposes for you? Do you really think he has completed everything he means to do in your life? Don't you know that God's work has just begun? He's not finished yet. And the harvest may be about to begin. The point here is not to downplay your trials and your losses. The point is those trials and losses are not the end of the story. They weren't the end for Naomi and they will not be the end for you either. The God who sent Ruth for Naomi and the God who sent Jesus for you 
is the God who fills his empty people. He's the God who brings sweetness and fruitfulness in place of bitterness and death. I don't know how that will happen in your life or when it will happen, but it will. Because that's what God's love does. His plans are never completed. His work is never over till he has brought fullness to his people. So let's bring our bitterness to him. Let's bring our bleak outlook and our lack of hope. Let's bring it all to Bethlehem. And as we look at Jesus this Advent, let's ask God to show us how dependable and how deep his love is. His amazing grace has not only rescued us from death, his grace will lead us to blessing. And Jesus, our faithful friend, will walk with us all the way. Our last song reminds us, the Lord has promised good to us and his amazing grace will deliver it. Let's join in singing Amazing Grace.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy Was the cost we stood?